podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. Well, we're in the second week of our Luke series, third week of Advent, and so we're continuing, of course, in Luke chapter 1, and next week we'll go into Luke 2. I shared with you a little bit, I think it was last week, maybe the week before, um, about going to school in Tulsa and then driving out here with some friends. Well, the very first time I drove out to Colorado was with uh, a friend who had lived here, who was from here, and that was either the end of my freshman, beginning of my sophomore year, I can't remember which Exactly, but we were making the drive, and we got into, um, we just crossed the state line from Kansas into Colorado at some point when it was really, really dark. Now, if you've made the drive from Kansas uh, into Colorado, I was expecting a more dramatic, um, you know, occurrence when we crossed the state line, and uh, it, it, it didn't happen. You know, I was sort of looking for the Rocky Mountains, and I didn't see it quite yet, and um, the more we got into the city, it was still sort of, you know, we got it on Highway 24, and I was still sort of waiting for it. I was waiting to have my breath taken away, and after that long, long stretch on I-70, it just it didn't quite happen. It was a bit of a letdown, but I probably built it up too much in my mind. But there are, there are moments in our lives where we find ourselves waiting, and we find ourselves waiting and waiting and waiting to the point that we begin to get weary. We begin to get really, really tired. My wife and I have three kids, and uh, our youngest, Jonas, you may have heard him during worship, he, um, or during Silent Night, I don't know if that was him or not, but uh, he does seem to want to talk um, or make sounds. Well, uh, last year, uh, uh, a little before this, so he was born November 18th of last year, and it got to the point where my wife was, you know, maybe a month, had a month to go, and she was saying, okay, I'm... I'm done waiting. I'm ready. You know, and there's a lot of you in the room who can relate to that. And you know that feeling. And there is this, this sense. There's so many uh, occasions in life where we feel like we are waiting and waiting and waiting. And it's just making you tired. It's just making you weary. I, I had a friend come over to my house uh, a couple nights ago. And um, he's got a pretty full schedule in the day. And so we were trying to squeeze in some time to get together. And the only time he could get together was to come over to my place when, uh, the, once the kids were asleep. And so he came over and we were chatting for a little bit. And he said, Glenn, it just seems like everybody I talk to when I say, how are you? The first word out of their mouth is tired, tired. And, uh, and I thought, you know, that's true. I think I've said that, you know, hey, Glenn, how are you doing? Tired, just a little tired. And I don't know if it's, um, this, I'm looking here at Eric and Valerie preparing for a wedding, and they're like, mm-hmm, yep. And Brian and Maria, I mean, all, all you guys. I mean, that's another experience in life where you're waiting, and you're waiting. And the closer that you get to it, it should be this happy thing, but you're like, enough of the planning already, you know? Like, can we elope, you know? Uh, right? Uh, uh, no, because um, I'm doing your wedding, so don't. Um, <laughs> but, but, but there are these moments where you say, well, how, how's it going? I'm just, I'm, I'm tired. And maybe you've had similar conversations with your friends as you've, you know, get, gotten together with different people that you know. And so how, how's life? And how are things? And how's the family? And how's work? And, and you find yourself just saying, I'm tired. I'm just tired. I'm kind of worn down. 
And if only, you know, it, things could be like how they were when we were school kids, because in school, you just sort of just got to wait till summer. And then once summer hits, it's like, all right! You know, things get kind of dreary in May or, you know, April even, you're kind of waiting. And then once you hit summer, it's like, woo! But you realize this thing when you, as we grow up and become adults that we don't have that anymore. And so what are we waiting for? Where, where is relief? When is the end of our school year? But at the same time, while there are moments in life that we can experience and we do experience this waiting and the weariness of waiting, there are also these moments that, offer to us a picture of a joy that overshadows, that outshines all the weariness of the waiting. And actually, having a baby is one of those moments. And for those of you that have had that experience, that's usually what happens. You get to this place, and you're weary, and you're tired, and then all of a sudden, this child comes, and you say, wow, and you sort of forget about everything else. And maybe, you know, four months, five months into raising this child, people sometimes say, I think I'm ready to get pregnant again, you know. You're like, no, no, don't you remember how miserable you were, like, six months ago? And it's almost as if all that pain and weariness and all of that gets sort of erased. How appropriate that something like the waiting and the weariness of that waiting and the joy that erases that weariness, how appropriate that all of that that we experience in a small little sliver when you are with child How appropriate that all of that is the exact story of Christmas. That it is itself the exact moment, the exact sort of thing, the the experience that's happening. We talked last week about Gabriel coming to Mary and coming to Zechariah and giving them this good news. But there's a weariness that was in their hearts. Not just because of, for Zechariah and and, uh, Elizabeth, not just because of their childlessness, and for Mary, not just because of the strangeness of that whole situation, but a weariness that was on the whole nation of Israel, saying, how long, Lord? How long? Is this really, are you really going to come through? Are you really going to be true to your promise? Because we've spent a lot of time remembering the promises that you gave in Isaiah. We've spent a lot of time remembering the promises that you gave us at the renewal of covenant in Deuteronomy. I told, I told you, I've told you this a number of different times, but just as a, by way of reminder, it, when we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls in, in the, whatever it was, you know, 30, 40 years ago, the, the copies of the Old Testament books that were, or the Old Testament books that, ha, that had the most copies made were Deuteronomy, Psalms, and Isaiah. It's a fair guess to say that around the time of Christ, these were the books that were shaping their prayers and their longings and their hopes. And so the kind of weariness that they would have felt to say, Hey, God, remember Deuteronomy? We, were your pe- we are your people. You are our God. You promised us this land. And we know we've been unfaithful to you, so we've been kicked out of the land. And we've come back in, but we're still under oppression. How about Isaiah? Remember, God, this promise of a Messiah of hope. We're weary in the waiting. And yet... This moment of rejoicing as they come closer to the actual birth of Jesus. And this is the text that we're going to pick up tonight at the end of Luke 1. We'll get to the two songs, the song of uh, Mary and then the song of Zechariah. But let's start here in verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. 
When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful moment. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and how and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Here's Elizabeth rejoicing, saying, Oh, I can't believe this. This is happening. This is real. And even as you came and said your greeting, inside me I felt this leap, felt this jump, felt this joy. How am I so blessed that the mother of my Lord is coming to me? Tonight, I want to talk to us with this, with this kind of phrase as our, uh, our heading maybe. Salvation has come. Salvation has come. And the first thing to say from this text is that God's salvation has come through the incarnate Son of God. Now, that's kind of a mouthful. Uh, it's not sort of the easiest point to remember, not the stickiest point, but just write it down. It'll help. God's salvation comes through the incarnate Son of God. And I think so, it's so easy for us to kind of say, well, yeah, well, we know that Jesus is God. And yeah, I, I mean, I know he's man, to human too, but just, you know. But here, here's Elizabeth saying, look, to Mary, the one who has Jesus in her womb. Blessed are you. How blessed am I that you've come to me, the mother of my Lord. There's something very ordinary about this. And it's easy to sort of gloss over and say, well, you know, we know that and we know, how, you know who Mary is and who this child is going to be and all the stuff and Jesus, the Son of God. And to almost miss the glory of the incarnation, to say how significant, how powerful it is. And that's why tonight, even as we took communion, to say, look, as we break this bread, as we take this cup, we're acknowledging that there was something deliberate about Jesus choosing to take on human skin and humanity, human nature. Why is that significant? We could talk for a whole night. In fact, last year, I think during Advent, we did spend a whole night just talking about why the hum- believing in the humanity of Jesus is such a big deal. But let me first say this. By God doing that, by Jesus coming inside a womb as a baby, as a human, not sort of this magical appearing, by Him doing that, He's saying to us, that remember when God made man and God made woman, He called it good. That He called us good. It's very tempting to sort of imagine that God sort of made creation and then, and then human beings sinned and God said, whoop, well, let's just kind of scrap that. Um, you guys hang out for a bit. I'll come and die for your sins. And then one day I'll come and then you can ride in my chariot and we'll get whisked away and, and we'll go up high and I'll give you, we'll do something else together. Wouldn't that have been easy? And maybe that's sometimes been our picture, our picture of salvation. Oh, salvation has come. It's our ticket out of here. Instead, salvation comes in the form of the incarnate Son of God. Salvation comes with skin on. Salvation comes in the very stuff of our world. Why does that matter? Because God's working from the inside of our world working from within his creation. Listen, I I, I don't think it's possible to overstate this because we're so tempted with the old, old Gnosticism, this dualism, this 
duality of there's, there's physical stuff and there's spiritual stuff. And spiritual stuff is more important than physical stuff. Listen, that was a temptation for the very first Christians to believe. That heresy, that duality, that, that splitting, that imagining that whatever is spirit and spiritual is good and whatever is material or physical is bad. Do you know that's not what the first Christians believed? In fact, the incarnation stands against, stands in the face of, of all such belief. There's now no, no room to say that this is spiritual and this is not spiritual. This is, oh, that's just physical. Well, we're just eating together. That's not really spiritual. What could be more spiritual than eating together? Than having food that is grown from the ground that God blessed and preparing it with love and tenderness and taking it back into... How, what could be more spiritual than that? That's why the, the Lord's table, the fact that it involves eating... Is, in, is itself something powerful. Ever wonder why the, the, the central sacrament of the church was not kind of a, um, an escapist practice? I mean, we could just have said, you know, we could have sort of said, well, let's make the central practice of worship of the church to be this thing where we all get together, close our eyes, and picture something cloud-filled. Instead, we say, no, 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 let's break and taste, and drink, and eat. Let's, let's take the stuff of this creation into us because God himself became incarnate. God's salvation didn't come as a tract. God's salvation didn't come as a message across the sky. God's salvation came embodied in flesh and blood. That matters. Because what we hear from that is that now creation is beginning to be redeemed. You know, maybe a helpful picture of this is Noah's flood. If there was ever a time that God was so mad, quote-unquote, as we imagine it in our minds, so mad at this world that he was, should, should have just destroyed everything and started over, it should have been then, right? Genesis 9, the moment where evil is working its worst, it started to infect. We've already got Cain and Abel, brother against brother. We've got, it, it's starting to really get into some awful, sordid sin. And God says, okay, we're going to wipe this out. But you know, that's not the whole of the story. The point is not so much that God wiped out. The point is that he preserved original creation. Think about it. Build an ark. Take two of every kind of, of animal. Bring it. Why? Why all that? Why go through that trouble? Why not say, hey, no, hey Noah, I'm going to create a little bubble for you. Just stay. Actually, why even preserve Noah? He could have just said, okay, everybody, uh, reset button here. Okay, let's try this again. No tree this time, okay, guys? Instead, God says, no, 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 no. What I'm going to do is I'm going to work a rescue plan from within my creation. I'm going to preserve a family. I'm going to preserve two of every kind. What is that picture telling us that God loves his original creation? And when Jesus comes, he comes from within our world, made of the same stuff as you and I, coming through a mother just like you and I have come from one. That is significant because this is God redeeming creation from within it. Can I suggest to you that God's salvation always works from within? That He's never been the sort of God that stands 
outside it, disconnected from it, detached from sort of our deist view of things where the man upstairs kind of has his plan and he's sort of upset and says, oh, well, hey, angel, go do this. No, 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 no. He says, okay, the incarnation was not something that really should have caught us unaware because it's always been God's MO to work from within. We're going to talk more about it in just a second. And so Elizabeth says this to Mary, and Mary responds with a song. We recently uh, on Netflix got Mary Poppins because we thought our girls might enjoy it. Um, But, you know, just because it's been a long time since Holly or I have seen it, we decided to sort of pre-screen it um, a couple nights ago. And we sat down, we watched the first hour of it, and we both were like, do you remember this much singing? I don't don't remember this much. It's like every scene is like, you know, anyway, whatever, it's... um, I'm trying to think of a song. Anyway, there's just, yeah, just a spoonful of sugar. Yeah, there's just a song in every moment. And, and, uh, and it almost seems sort of funny because here's the story and Elizabeth's talking to Mary and saying all the stuff. And Mary says, mm-hmm. Oh, my soul, magnify. You know, like, wow, who, who does that? You know, it's this Julie Andrews, you know. Uh, actually, Mary responding with a song is in good keeping with Jewish tradition. The text of Mary's song is very, very similar to the text of Hannah's song in the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel, when Hannah finds out that she's, given, that she's with child and she's having Samuel and she breaks into this song because she knows her child is going to be the instrument of God's restorative justice. She knows her child is the one that's going to help bring Israel hope. And so Mary, in that same vein, sings this song. Now imagine with me for a moment. Enter this text with me. Imagine that, what if Mary, on her way to Elizabeth, this young girl, knowing that she's going to go see her sister, and she's also with child, who knows how long the journey exactly is, but maybe somewhere along the way, Mary starts singing. And maybe Mary knew Hannah's song. She starts singing, oh, my soul magnifies the Lord. And we wonder if Mary's kind of just working on it, and it's just, she's thinking about it, and meditating, and contemplating, and the goodness, the faithfulness of God, and what all of this might mean, and she sees Elizabeth, and she starts singing, oh, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him. From generation to generation, He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. I want to say, this song, you know, it's been called the Magnificat, the Latin word, which is the Latin word for this phrase, magnifies. It's the first word of Mary's song. And, and the Magnificat, it likely, it could be one of the earliest songs that Christians would sing together as they gathered. In fact, even in the Book of Common Prayer, which is not that old comparatively, it's only a few hundred years old, but it's, it's listed in there as a song that we sing, and churches have done this. Maybe you grew up singing the, the text of the Magnificat. But here's what's remarkable, uh, remarkable about this. These lines, he's brought down rulers from their thrones. This isn't just a sweet teenage girl singing a, oh, yay, God, you gave me. This is a revolution song. I mean, this is almost like Rage Against the Machine. I mean, this is like, rulers will be brought. This is, 
a song of subversion, of revolution, of look, things are going to be different. The ones who are running the world right now are about to be brought down and there's going to be a new ruler of this world. That's the kind of tone these phrases strike. But he's lifted up the humble, he's filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. Doesn't that sound like a dramatic social reversal? He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. She goes on to tell us about her staying with Elizabeth. The song is not just a song of praise and thanksgiving. Oh, thank you, Lord. This is a song of revolution. A song that's saying, God, your salvation is coming. And what your salvation is going to mean is the end of the way things have been. A change in who's running this place. Interestingly, Zechariah's song has some similar overtones. Turn with me in Luke 1, verse 67, and we look at his song. And his song, because his opening word is blessed, the Latin word for blessed is benedictus, so that, this song is called the benedictus. And in verse 67, it says this, and this is after John the Baptist has been born, and, and Zechariah can finally speak again. He says, no, his name's John, even though I know it's not a family name, but this is what the angel said. And Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said long ago. As he said through his holy prophets long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, we're going to talk about that in just a moment, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in, all, in holiness and in righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. He's talking about John. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. Wow. To shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and guide our feet into the path of peace. In Zechariah's song, there's a poetic device that's used that's called a chiasmus. And, and uh, if you're familiar with this, the, the basic idea is that the beginnings and the ends of a song or a piece of poetry have recurring phrases and they kind of work their way inwards so that you focus on what's at the center of the poem or the center of the song. And so, uh, for example, in this one specifically, he, start, he, he begins and ends with talking about a visit, about God coming to his people. And then he mentions second, salvation. And second from the end, he mentions salvation. And then he mentions his people, Israel. It's coming to his people. And he mentions that third from the end. And then next he says it's going to mean something for our enemies. And he restates that fourth from the end. Do you see how it's kind of working its way? And at the very core of the song, the very middle of the song, the thing that by its poetic de device we're supposed to pay attention to, do you know what it is? It's this verse right here. To remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. Why does this matter? Because God's salvation is the long-awaited fulfillment of an old promise. 
But God's salvation is the long-awaited fulfillment of an old promise. I think we sometimes have a view of Jesus or a view of Christmas or a view of Jesus' birth as sort of this dehistoricized, disconnected, abstract sort of story as though it could have happened in India or Spain or China or wherever, but it happened to happen in Bethlehem to a Jewish girl named Mary. Can I tell you that to do that is to rip the story out of its rich, rich history? That actually this birth of Jesus is the, fulfill, the long-awaited fulfillment of an old promise. Both Mary and Zechariah in their songs reference a promise. They reference Abraham. What are they talking about? You see, in Genesis 12, God said this to Abraham when he called him. The Lord had said to Abraham, this is before he had changed his name, Go from your country, your people and your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. We don't often talk about this in our sort of de-Judaized, de-historicized, evangelical settings. But Jesus is the fulfillment of of a promise God made to Abraham a long time ago. Because sometimes, and this is why it matters, because we sometimes imagine that, oh yeah, it's like, well, Adam and Eve, they sinned, and then God sort of said, huh. And then waited, and then waited, and then watched this. There was some like side stage drama about Israel, and don't really know what that's about, but thank God we're not under the law, and we just sort of, uh, I don't know. Oh, and then Jesus. Okay, now we feel comfortable. But that's not how it goes. In fact, the way the story is told to us in Genesis is a good God made the heavens and the earth. He put humankind to, humankind to, to be over it, to, be, to reign over it. And then they sin, they rebel, and sin starts to infect the world. There's this rebellion, Cain and Abel. There's, a, there's murder that happens between brothers. You start to see what happens in Genesis 11. Babel, humankind fracturing into different societies. And the very next thing is not God saying, well, hold on, um, I'm going to send someone who will die for your sins and take you to heaven. The very next thing is God saying, I'm going to choose a family. Remember, God working from within his creation. I'm going to choose a family, and through this family is going to come a nation, and from that nation will come this nation's Messiah, and that Messiah will fulfill this old promise and bring blessings to the world. How in the world is God going to use Israel to bless all the nations of the world when Israel himself is, is faulty? Listen to this in Isaiah 49. We had it as the Old Testament reading. Let me just skip down here. Oh, to verse 3. He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will display splendor. Skip down to verse 6. It is, too, is it too small a thing for you to be my servant to... Sorry, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may what? Reach the ends of the earth. Now, who's that promise to? His servant, Israel, who is the nation that came from the man, Abraham. Well, God, I don't know if you realize this, but you've got a problem because Israel, not so good at keeping covenant with you. Abraham, good guy, still sinful. Remember he lied about 
his wife, and that, how are you going how are you going to do this? This is where I think we sort of imagine that God kind of looked down and said, oh, that Abraham thing's not working, so good. oh, that Israel thing, yeah, they're not being fit. Well, uh, hey, Jesus, ready? Now's the time, just come. And a baby was born, and who cares where, and who cares to whom a baby showed up, and he later grew up and died. Is that really the story? No. Mary's song and Zachariah's song do not give us the liberty to dehistoricize this, to disconnect it from Abraham. They reference Abraham. Oh God, this child is a fulfillment of a long-ago promise. How is God going to use his servant Israel to bring salvation to the ends of the earth? Because one person, fully God, yet fully human, this Jewish man, this Jewish child, would come from Abraham's family and do it. Do you see that? I mean, some of you are kind of looking at me like, dude, who cares? Most of us are Gentiles anyway. It says something to me about God. Imagine a coach who's got to try to win a game with a lousy quarterback. Not tough to imagine for us here in Denver or Colorado. And uh, let's say the coach says, I am telling you, Kyle Orton is the starting quarterback. I will not put Tebow in, though the whole world is chanting for Tebow. And let's say the coach says, no, I have made a commitment. Kyle Orton is my quarterback. And on game day, on the first play of the game, Kyle Orton dislocates his throwing arm, like just hideously, like this. And imagine that the coach says, you know what? I said we're going to win this game with Kyle Orton. We're going to win this game with Kyle Orton. And he does something that no one thought possible. He pulls it off. Look, how'd you do that? Now that's got all kinds of problems as a metaphor. (laughs) Okay? Please, I know that. But God made a promise to bring his salvation to the ends of the earth through Abraham and Abraham's family. That's why Jesus came through Mary, a Jewish girl who lived in Israel. That's why. How, God, how are you going to do this? This is not the God that says, whoops, scrap that, plan B, angels, Jesus, let's go. This is a God that says, I made a promise, and I decided to use this family. And despite your faithlessness, despite your unfaithfulness, I am God, and so I find a way to work my salvation from within, through your mess, through your sin, to bring redemption, salvation to all peoples. This is a God who cannot be stopped. Cannot be stopped. I think we imagine God to be a painter that starts working on a mural, and then some vandal comes along and graffitis it, and God says, hmm, all right, well, I'll just move over to this wall over here. When in fact, what God does is he says, vandal, on my good creation, fine, bring it. I'll find a way to redeem it, to work from within it, to save it, to rescue it. This God works salvation from within. This God fulfills his promise. He's faithful. I, th- I tell you, when you grasp that, like the lights are coming on for some of you, you realize that God's salvation really is the reason we sing. It really is the reason we sing. 
It's the reason Mary bursts into song. It's the reason Zechariah, overcome by the Holy Spirit, begins to prophesy in a song, singing prophetically. Why? Because the lights were great and the band was cranking? Because he saw the salvation of the Lord. I'm telling you, let the Holy Spirit open our eyes this season of Advent to see his salvation. See, it would be easy to kind of treat the story like just a nice sort of moral, a story with a moral, you know, as if this is the, the Bible is like Aesop's fables, you know. Oh, well, you know, there was this fox that was trying to get grapes and he couldn't get the grapes, you know. This story of Mary and Zechariah and Jesus and Abraham is our story. I've just told you your history. I've just told you the same story that we're part of. This is our story together. We're not, we're not reading the Bible to say, oh, well, that's pretty neat. Gee, what's the lesson we can learn from this? What's the principle I can apply? Of course there's things and principles and all that stuff, but we're not... To, listen, our goal, number one, is to realize what we've been talking about is actually your story. It's the story of God at work to redeem His creation from within, faithfully, faithful to His promise, and that story continues now in us. We continue as His people. We are living this out here and now. <laughs> it is reason to sing. When I was actively involved as a worship leader, it used to trouble me, and it still does, at how many of our songs are not really connected to event, but there are sort of ethereally related to experience. You know, a song that sort of is all about this moment. Oh, Lord. And I'm okay with this moment being powerful. But the real reason this moment is powerful is because of that moment 2,000 years ago. Does that make sense? Mary and Zechariah weren't having a private, ecstatic, spiritual experience. They were realizing that a history was reaching its culmination right in front of them, right inside her. When Mary starts singing, she's not singing because, wow, I just, woohoo! I got the Spirit. Mary's singing because she's saying, God, the God of creation is breaking in. The God who made promises is keeping them. The God who said he was going to use Israel to bring salvation to the ends of the earth is doing it now through this one child, the Messiah that we sang about tonight. It matters. It matters. May the reason that we sing always be because we see and have heard and understand that the salvation of the Lord has come. May the reason that we rejoice and have hope even in the midst of darkness and difficulty this Christmas, may the reason that a song keeps bubbling up inside our hearts, may it ever be because we know the salvation of the Lord has come. May that hope break through your hearts this season. Let's pray together. As we pray tonight, I want to invite the...
Lisa and Kaylin, too, who are doing the um, acolytes to come and do this. And you can kind of dim the lights for us, Nick. And I want us to pray again the prayer that we prayed before communion, the prayer of this incarnation of Jesus. We'll pray it together, and then we'll sit for just a moment while they're coming. And they're going to take their candles and light it and walk out again as a picture. The light that came into this world is still with us in this world through the Holy Spirit. So let's pray together. Oh God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature, grants that we may share the divine life of Him who humbled Himself to share our humanity. Your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with You in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. The Lord be with you this week. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday.